Hey friends, welcome back to Nate Talks to his friends about Jesus. Uh, thanks for coming back. Hey, if this is something good for you, please um, like it or subscribe to it. And just find a way to share it with somebody you care about. Uh, we are trying to spread good and trying to help people believe more in their Savior so that they can have more happiness and goodness in their life. So, so just spread it. Hey, um, this is kind of a little bit different. Usually we will have just one episode a week, but uh, this week we're going to have two. I wanted to tell you a little bit more about Joseph getting the, the gold plates and actually translating the gold plates. So this will be episode number two this week, which will be a little bit unusual. But I don't know about you, but I find instructions super helpful. I went mountain biking not too long ago, and it was in the, the after a rainstorm, and so my shoes got really muddy. So I had the genius idea uh, of rinsing off my shoes. I know, it's crazy. So it was cold and rainy outside, though, so I rinsed them off in our kitchen sink. And then I sprayed out the sink and ran the disposal. Uh, what? There was little pieces of gravel in the mud, and apparently that jammed up my disposal and it stopped working. It was completely my fault. It was a dumb move, straight up amateur move. And I'm like, oh, dude, I'm going to have to pay for a whole new disposal. But before I did that, I went to YouTube and found step-by-step -step video instructions on how to fix your disposal. I followed them, cleaned it out, reset it, and wham, bam, I'm back in business. Like... YouTube instructions have made me much more handy around the house. Don't tell my wife. She might think it's just me. Actually, there's no mystery. She knows it's all YouTube. Now, you can get instructions for a lot of things, but you can't get instructions for some important things. Like, I remember being made senior companion in the middle of Floriano, Brazil. It was like something like 10 hours by bus to the mission home. We're out there all alone. And I really just don't have a clue what I'm doing more or less. I know I need to talk to people and I know I should know what to do to help people come into Christ, but I really didn't feel like I, I did. Or like trying to be a grown up. I, again, there's probably YouTube videos for this, but not when I started out. Like we're trying to find a house to live in and I, I, it looks amazing online. And then we went to see them and they like smell moldy and they're small and weird spaces. Like, I don't know. And don't even get me started on kids. You figure out one, and then along comes another one that's totally different. And then the one you thought had fi you had figured out hits puberty, and oh, sweet mercy, what do I do? Like, just, there's no instruction book. I really don't know. Joseph might have some insight here. You remember Moroni appeared in his room, just like teleported in his room. He says he looks like a lightning bolt, just bright, just radiant, saying, I got good news. God is bringing back the fullness of the gospel, the covenant, the way to connect with Jesus. And, and then he goes on to say that Joseph is going to be instrumental in bringing this covenant back to earth, but it's not going to be very fun for Joseph. And God is going to help people to make these covenants by bringing a book back to earth, a book that was written by people who lived in the, uh, in the Americas. And, and then he adds that there's going to be some stones with this book that's going to help with the process. 
And then he said, don't show this book to anybody. And then he straight gathers light to him. Tell me that's not superhero-like. And then shoots off in a conduit, teleports to somewhere else, and boom, Joseph is left laying there in the bed. When he's just mind blown right there, then Moroni comes again with the exact same message, but with added caution about how Satan is going to, to try and tempt him. And then he comes a third time and repeats the same message. After he leaves like a superhero teleporting this third time, Joseph is just exhausted, but the the rooster crows, it's time to go to work. He goes down, eats his breakfast, and then goes out to the field. His older brother Alvin sees that he's dragging butt, and he's like, get to work, Joseph, just like an older brother would. He's like, we're never going to get done if you don't get cracking. And then uh, his dad notices that he's dragging and he knows it's not in Joseph's nature just to be a slacker. And so he figures Joseph's sick. So he sends him off home. As he's traveling off home, he collapses again. Moroni appears again, gives him the same message and then says, go talk to your dad. Uh, His dad, wonderful, trusting man. Like, I don't know if you go to your parents and you're like, dad, I saw an angel last night. I think they might reply, didn't we talk about drugs? Like, I don't know if their response would be like, this is a good thing. But to Joseph Smith Sr.'s credit, he he says, this is a good thing. This is of God. Go check it out. So Moroni had shown him clearly in visions where it was. It was about three miles away. And so Joseph gets walking there down the dirt roads and and whatnot. and, And he climbs this hill. And he, he finds the, the rock that had been shown him in the vision. It's large, kind of round, sloping to the edges on the west side of the hill, not very far from the top. But as he's walking there, Joseph starts daydreaming. I, I don't think you understand how hard Joseph has already had to work in his young life as a day laborer just to make ends meet for his young family. Um, Many, many new immigrant families can relate to this, working several jobs, trying to get by, really trying to make ends work. That's where he's at. They, like Everybody in their family has to hustle. Everybody is doing the most they can. And he's like, dude, gold plates, man, gold plates. He's not going to use it to do anything, but it's just daydreaming. Uh, we've all daydreamed before. Like, what would happen if I had a, if I had a million dollars? Do you remember that? Like, what would I do if I had that much money? He's kind of daydreaming about. Anyways, he, he gets to the hill. He locates it pretty easily, kind of digs off the dirt around the edge of the, the rock. And then he gets a tree branch as a lever to, to raise it up. And then he sees underneath the boulder is a box, just like I said. It's made of stone. And inside he sees the, the gold plates. He sees the stones. He sees the breastplates. And he again is like, dude, that's like a lot of gold. And so he reaches for it and boom, he's shocked, like physical shock run through him. Now, by my grandma's house growing up, there was a pen for animals. Surrounding that pen was an electric fence. I really wish I could tell you that I only grabbed that electric fence one time. That would be a lie, though. And in fine teenage boy fashion, Joseph reaches again, boom, shocked again. This time, just straight determined, he reaches again, and as only a teenage boy would stubbornly do for the plates and gets shocked and thrown back a third time, yells out in frustration, why can I not obtain this book? Here's a voice nearby, because you have not kept the commandments of the Lord. Oh, (laughs) 
And Moroni comes at him and he's like, you remember when I told you, you cannot have anything on your mind except the kingdom of God here. You can't be trying to get rich right here. You can't be daydreaming about this. Satan is going to come at you. You got to purify your mind. You got to purify your heart. And we'll talk about this again. So get your head right. Well, when can I try again? Now, Moroni is kind of a disciplinarian. He is a kind of authoritarian. He's like, it's not going to be quick. It's not just like, okay, I'm sorry. You can try again. Like, I'm a wuss. Like, if my kids say sorry and do some more dishes, they, they get the, then they're good. But Moroni's like, nah, you need to wait a whole year. You come back on the 22nd day of September next year and bring the right person with you, you'll be good. Well, who's the right person? He says, your oldest brother. Now, his oldest brother is Alvin. Alvin is just a stud, uh, a great example, faithful young man, helping build his, his parents a, a new house to live in. But two months after Moroni's visit, Alvin comes home from work with an intense pain in his stomach. He's just bent over in agony saying, dad, please go get somebody to help me. So his dad runs and goes and gets the doctor. The doctor comes and for intense abdominal pain, he has him take this thick chalky substance. Think like Tums times 10 or something like that. Uh, and usually, like, I don't know, if my stomach's acidy and hurts and painful, that kind of helps. But this doesn't help. It only makes things worse. Seems to lodge in his stomach. Alvin lays in beds for days just writhing in agony and basically knowing he's going to die in pain. So he calls Joseph to him and he says, do everything in your power to obtain the record. Be faithful and receive instructions from the angel. Keep the commandments and do it. And Alvin was right. Sure enough, he dies a short time later. That kind of the heavy sorrow sits over the house. At his funeral, a well-meaning preacher um, uses Alvin as an example uh, of why you should commit to God during this life because Alvin had never been baptized. And, and he just says, Alvin's gone to hell. And this, this sits heavy with everybody. So Joseph continues to work with his family. Life goes on. There's kind of a, a heaviness that accompanies it. But a, a year later, Joseph goes alone without his older brother, without the right person, but the right person is gone apparently. And, and he, he's unsure if he's going to be able to get the plates. He goes up to the same place, clears off the rock, uses a lever, sees the box. And I wonder if he's like gearing up to grab him this time. Like, I don't know, licking his fingers before he grabs him because he's preparing to get shocked because I'm sure that physical memory of that shock is still there. So he reaches for it and he's able to get it. He lifts it up and he's about to go away. But then he's like, this is dumb. I can't just leave this box open. There's other valuable things here. But Moroni had been super clear. He said, you take them into your hands and you go straight to the house and lock them up. But Joseph puts them down just real quick, puts the, the, the boulder back and then turns around and the plates are gone. Tell me you wouldn't want to throw up in that moment. Prophets of God for thousands of years have kept this record safe with their lives. And you, within 30 seconds, lose the plates? Oh, man. So he kneels down to, to pray, and Moroni shows up and basically says, dude, you didn't listen. <laughs> you 
got to be taking care of this. Like I'm telling you, this is the key that's going to bring back the covenant. This is going to link people to God. You cannot be so careless. And so he, he shows him a vision. The plates are safe again, locked up. And he says, basically, come back in another year and we'll see if you're ready. So another year passes, another hard, a year of hard work, hard labor, and, and he goes for a third time. Uh, since he is a young man, he doesn't leave a record of what happens this third time. We don't, hap- uh, we don't know what happens, but we also know he doesn't get the plates. Moroni says, well, let's try again, keep working. Well, in the meantime, in the middle of this third and fourth visit in this next year, something pretty pivotal happens for Joseph. He starts a new job with a guy named Josiah Stoll. Josiah is convinced that there's buried Spanish treasure in Pennsylvania. I don't know how likely that is, but it's basically the plot to every Expedition Unknown episode with Josh Gates. So, I don't know. Josh Gates has enough viewership to show that people are really interested in treasure hunts. And what is it? National treasure? Like, people are willing to sit through all that bad acting because the idea of treasure it even makes Nicolas Cage palatable. Anyways, uh, Josiah goes out of his way, hundreds of miles out of his way, to hire Joseph because he has heard of his ability to use seer stones to find lost objects. Now, we'll talk about seer stones a little later today, but Josiah travels hundreds of miles to recruit him, like we said, and, and kind of tests out Joseph's ability. While at Joseph's house, Joseph uses his seer stone to describe to Josiah his house, meaning Josiah's house, that Joseph has never been to, never even been close to, describes his house, his outbuildings, and even describes a tree that has a painting picture of it with a man's head. Um, And he's doing this all while looking at a stone. Now, again, we'll talk about this in a minute, but Josiah is convinced. And so Joseph starts his expedition, a known treasure hunt with Josiah to earn some extra money digging uh, holes and looking for treasure. While there, um, he is in Harmony, Pennsylvania. He boards with the Hale family. Now, the Hale family have a daughter named Emma, and Joseph falls hard for this girl right from the very beginning. And they kind of start to date. His parents aren't, her parents aren't super excited about this because this is a kind of a poor, uh, working class laborer kid. And they're, they have higher hopes for their daughter. But they both like being outdoors. Uh, they enjoy riding horses together, going canoeing. Like they had some good dates nights, right? Um, and so, so they have fun. Joseph is just easy to be around. He's quick to smile, quick to tell jokes and humorous stories. And, and she just likes how she feels when she's around him. He's attracted to her intelligence and her singing and her beauty. Like it's kind of fun. And Emma likes Joseph better than she likes anybody else. But anyways, September comes again. Visit number four. Joseph leaves Harmony, travels back um, to, to Palmyra, and goes back up on the hill. This time, Moroni is like, nah, you're not getting the plates again. Quit the company of money diggers. He says, there are wicked men among them, and, and you, you have got to get away from that, that sort of stuff. And basically, Moroni gives him an ultimatum. He says, you get, you get one more year to get your head right, to align your will with God's will. If you don't, you will never get the plates and God will find another way. 
So the angel also says, you need to bring somebody with you next time. It's the same request he made the first time, but now Alvin's gone. So who is, who's the right person? And Moroni cryptically just replies, you'll know. So he looks in his seer stone and he finds out that the right person is going to be Emma. That winter, he starts talking to his parents and he's like, guys, I really like Emma. And, and so they say, well, you should go for it. So he, he makes his way back to Harmony um, to his friend Josiah Stoll that he's working for. And they're close, even though they had an ever found treasure. And he, he starts spending time with Emma, and, but his fam- her family really like kind of disapproves. But so they meet up at the Stoll's kind of third party. Uh, I don't know, like every teenager ever would do. And he, he proposes to her. She knows her parents would oppose the marriage, but, but she thinks about it. He's like, we could just elope. And, and Emma thinks about it and she's like, well, I think I'll be most happy with him. I don't even know if she, she, if she could see some of the difficulties that are coming, but she goes for it. Um, January 18th. 1827, Joseph and Emma get a, a local justice of the peace and uh, they, they get married. She grabs her stuff and they run off to live with Joseph's parents. Now, the, the house they move into is pretty comfortable. It's a two-story house. It's the one that Alvin had started building with him and had now been finished. But uh, I don't know. This is a common story throughout history. They'd overspent on it. They'd fallen behind on their, their mortgage payments and they lost the property uh, it had been foreclosed on, and so now they're renting it from the, the new owners of the property. Um, and they, they, they like having Emma around, but they're, they're kind of anxious about this ultimatum that Moroni has given. One day, Joseph comes home pretty late, um, and um, his dad's like, why are you so late? And, and he's like, I just had the most severe chastisement of my life. And his dad, a little defensive, is like, who's been taking you to task? I'll go talk to him. And he's like, no, you won't, dad. It was the angel of the Lord. He says, I've been negligent. He says, I must be up and doing. I must set myself about the things what God has commanded. Like Moroni is hardcore. I don't, I don't know if you get this. And so the time is approaching, the, this ultimate time, this, this fifth visit, the fourth year, right? Um, and and the, you, enough people know about the place. They don't believe Joseph is a prophet, but somehow at the same time, they believe he has treasure. One guy in particular named Samuel Lawrence has been combing the hill looking for it. Um, and they kind of even know the date. And so to throw them off, he's going to go at midnight on September to the 22nd just to, to uh, avoid some of these treasure seekers. Before he goes, he goes to his mom after everybody else has gone to bed and asks, do you have like some sort of thing I could lock these up in? And she's like, no, honey, sorry. He's like, all right, never mind. I can do without it. So Emma comes out and they, they borrow... Um, a carriage from Joseph Knight. He was visiting, like excited about Joseph getting the plates. Like that's why he's there visiting. And Emma and Joseph take off in the middle of the night, driving through the darkness towards the hill. Um, Once they get there, Emma actually waits in the carriage and he goes up there and it works. He secures the plates. He gets them. He comes back down and since there's not a place to lock them up, instead he puts them in a hollowed out log where they would be safe until he found a lockbox. 
Uh, I don't know about that that part, man. That seems crazy, but again, he's got the plates and it seems all right. He takes the 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 urim and thummim, as we call them, the two stones that were with the plates, and he puts them in his pocket, wrapped up in a napkin, and then him and Emma return home as the sun's rising. As he gets back home, Joseph Knight's there waiting for him, and Joseph uh, Joseph Smith Jr. is a playful guy. He he walks in with like a, kind of a sad face, and he says, "I am disappointed." And Joseph Knight is like, "Well, I'm sorry, man." And Joseph says, "I'm greatly disappointed. It's ten times better than I expected." He's like, "I can see anything with the these stones. It's marvelous." So the next day, Joseph goes off taking a day labor job in another town, uh, repairing a well so that he could get some money for a lockbox because he's actually got the plates then. Well, his dad's off in town and he overhears some people saying that they're going to get the plates in spite of Joe Smith and all the devils in hell. Well, his dad's like, this freaks him out. So he goes home and tells Emma, she's like, I'm sure they're okay. But she gets on her horse and rides to Joseph. Joseph is down there in the well when when she comes. He climbs out caked in dirt and sweat. And he looks in the Urim and Thummim. And he sees that the plates are safe. But he's like, all right, but I better go and kind of move forward. So he rides back, leaves his horse at the farm, and then walks to the hill. He finds the log, gets the plates, takes off his shirt, and wraps them around the plates. And now the, the plates apparently from our witnesses are between 40 and 60 pounds. 60 pounds is a lot. Uh, they're, they're about six or seven inches wide and about eight inches long. Uh, they're, they're really thin, kind of like plates of tin, Emma says, as they, they would kind of rustle as uh, she would run her hands across the edge of it. And there's kind of three D-shaped rings that, that bound the edges. About half the book is sealed with some sort of substance that makes it impossible to turn the pages. So Joseph's carrying 60 pounds and walking through the woods. He doesn't want to take the main road in case somebody's there. As he's walking through the woods, he crawls over a log and somebody hits him hard from behind. He turns around and sees a man coming at him wielding a gun like a club. So he clutches the plates in one arm and knocks the guy to the ground and just runs deeper into the thick trees there. He runs, he says, for about a mile and another guy jumps out from behind a tree and strikes him with the butt of the gun. This is second time he's been hit with a, the gun. He, he pushes this guy off, tussles with him a little bit, the whole time holding on to these 60-pound plates, and then runs off again, and a third guy comes hitting him a heavy blow. He's just stumbling to the ground. Joseph turns, punches this guy as hard as he can, so hard, in fact, that he dislocates his own thumb, and then just sprints back to his house. Like we're talking a cross country race. <laughs> like it's a combination between wrestling, cross country, and weightlifting all at the same time. Have that CrossFit. Um, finally, he gets to the the house. His dad sets his thumb, <coughs> and and uh, they're like, "What do we do with the plates?" Well, not long after he gets the plates home. He looks in the Urim and Thummim and sees that there's people who want to come and get the plates. So they, they, they have a fireplace there and you pull up one of the stones from the fireplace and they bury the plates under their fireplace, under the hearthstone in their homes just before the, the men arrive. Uh, as the they, um, men arrive, um, Lucy says that uh, there's these guys outside and so... <laughs> 
to fight them off. Joseph just screams like he's got a whole bunch of guys. Come on, guys, let's go fight them. And Lucy says all the male portion of the family from the father down to little Carlos ran out with such fury upon the mob that it struck them with terror and they fled. (laughs) Like just they're like, come on, let's go fight. And they run off. Well, that doesn't stop people from coming at them. Shortly after this, a guy named Samuel Lawrence, remember the guy that was combing the hill? He comes with a guy who is called a great rodsman. A rodsman is somebody that can use divining rods. Um, and we'll talk more about this when we talk about Oliver. But they're, they're, they're usually two rods that you hold in your hand and you can use them to find water or things that have been lost and the guy is there and they're kind of sitting down chatting and they're like, hey, we, let's let, we know you have the plates. Let's use the gold and we'll split it 50-50 with you. We know how to make this work. And Joe's like, no, 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 we're not going to do that. And so in the most creepy way, this guy with the rods gets up and starts walking around the house and then boom, his rods point right to where the plates are. And he's like, they're right here. And they're like, okay, see you later. You can go now. So Joseph digs up the plates and puts them in a box and then he takes them out to their old log cabin, which is now being used as a cooper shop, like where somewhere you make barrels. And he pries up the floor and hides them under the floor. And then again, he, he feels a little bit uneasy about it. And um, so he digs it up, um, takes it out of the box, renails the box shut, puts the dot box under the, the floorboard, wraps them in some old clothes and some flax and puts it up in the second story lo- um, loft of this Cooper shop. Well, that evening, uh, another mob following instructions given by Sally Chase, and she's looking at a, her green seer stone. They, they go and they find the box under the Cooper shop. And the next day, they, they go in and they find that the Cooper shop has, floor has been dug up and that the box is all broken, but they didn't find the plates. Uh, and so, like, th- this is just, it's going on and on. Like, mobs threaten to, to tar and feather Joseph, um, some even take shots at him, like shooting guns at him. Uh, this is obviously not going to work to try and translate this record here in uh, New York. So Emma writes her family. She's now pregnant. And they're, they're miffed that Joseph kind of, that Emma eloped with Joseph. Joseph kind of stole away their daughter. But they're, they're also excited that they're going to be grandparents and that their daughter's pregnant. And so they agree that they can come live uh, with them. And Joseph writes to Emma's brother Alva to come help him, and he brings out a, a wagon to help them move. Martin Harris, a, a family friend, a well off uh, farmer in the area, gives Joseph some money so he can pay off his debts and finance his move to Pennsylvania. And, and he lets him know that there's rumors of mobs' plans uh, to stop you all along the way. And so they tell everybody, hey, um, it's been real. It's been good to be around you. We'll be setting off on Monday. And then they leave two days earlier on Saturday, each Joseph and Alva with a, a heavy stout club to beat people's brains in. They take the plates, nail the plates in a box, put that box in a, a big old cask, uh, a big barrel, fill that barrel up with beans, and then they head off. Well, it doesn't take long before they're overtaken by a cop. I don't know how you pull somebody over on a horse. You just sit on your horse and go like, wee-oo, 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 
and then they pull over. Whatever happens, the, the cop has a search warrant thinking that he's going to find the plates. He doesn't. They go a little further and another guy pulls him over, another cop with the same sort of thing, but each are unsuccessful in finding it. Finally, they arrive at Emma's parents' house and they're able to settle down a little bit. Now, usually we assume that Joseph knew exactly how to translate the book once he received the plates, Um, but there is a steep learning curve. Uh, He doesn't translate anything from September on through the the winter of 1828. Um, He spends time studying the characters and making himself familiar with them and becoming more familiar with the Urim and Thummim. In fact, it doesn't seem like he even thinks he's going to be the one to, to record, to translate it early on. It seems like he feels like he's just the one that's supposed to find somebody to translate it. Joseph Knight Sr. records that Joseph says, they are written in characters and I want them translated. Uh, later, he, he, um, he says, he now began to be anxious to get them translated. He, therefore, his wife drew off characters exactly like the ancients and sent Martin Harris to see if he could get them translated. In fact, somebody, not even a, like a member of the church, uh, just uh, his name's Jonathan Hadley. He records that he was in search of someone besides the interpreter who has learned enough to English them. Um, so this is kind of interesting. Joseph um, basically uh, doesn't know anything about the language that's inscribed on them. We know from reading the book itself that it's Reformed Egyptian. Like how complicated is this? It is Nephite language, meaning it's some form of corrupted or changed Hebrew that's been changed over time that's written in Egyptian and not just Egyptian, but a a form of Egyptian shorthand. So like, can you just imagine how crazy this would be? It would be like handing you something that is written Chinese, but recorded in French shorthand. Uh, Like it's so crazy. There's nobody that actually knows that language. But Joseph seems to think that they're inscribed in some Native American language. And so initially, he sends off um, Martin to go find somebody that is uh, kind of schooled in this Native American language with copies of um, these characters. And so you know the story well. Uh, Martin says, I went by the request of Prophet Joseph Smith to the city of New York and presented the characters to Professor Anthon and Dr. Mitchell. And so as, as Martin leaves, though, Joseph um, is looking at the spectacles and he begins to see written text on there, but he seems not to know what to make of it. Anyways, in Joseph Smith history, um, he goes off and he visits Professor Anthon, and he says that, that the characters are Egyptian, Chaldaic, Assyric, and, and Arabic, and they were true characters and gave him a certificate. And then, as you know, uh, he asks how he found it. It was an angel-sealed book and tears up the certificate. Then he goes to Dr. Mitchell, um, who's the VP up at Rutgers and known for being a historian and linguist, Charles Anthon, a, a, a professor of classical studies. But, and, and so they, they failed to find somebody to translate it. But looking back on this, this is just what they needed. Like they begin to, to see this as fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah, I cannot read a sealed book. And he realizes that God expects him, this 
basically uneducated young man to use the gifts he's been given to translate. So that brings us to the the mechanics of translation. And as we talk about the mechanics of translation, you need to know that that Joseph lives in a a transition period between an age of what is called enchantment or a belief in supernatural powers, even um, a godlike powers coming to earth, and the age of the enlightenment or science. Like very much Joseph lives in the, this culture steeped in Bible culture, steeped in this idea that God can do miracles, that people can use objects in miraculous ways. The Bible talks about Jacob using peeled poplar and hazel sticks to change the outcome of the birth of sheep. Moses and Aaron both use rods. And the Bible has a record of Urim and Thummim. Um, and that's just, Urim and Thummim is a title. It's not just the rocks that Joseph gets. It's a title for objects used to receive revelation. And even consecrated oil, an object is used to heal the sick. Um, and so the, the people in Joseph's culture believe that you can use objects to access the power of God and to do these great things. Um, now, Joseph has had a stone since he was pretty young. Um, he was able to, to look into a friend's stone and see things. And then uh, from what we can see uh, from what Martin Harris says um, in an interview with Joel Tiffany, Joseph gets his stone when he, he's uh, digging a well for Mason Chase. And uh, he can use it to, to see visions of people and places and lost items. Now, I want to just pause right here super quick. And we may come back to this point, but like once you hear Joseph looking into a stone and receiving information for it, some of you, your walls go up. But we are the last people on earth who should be like that skeptical of looking into an object for information. Like when you need information, where do you go for information? You go to a plastic box and you gaze into it and it tells you information. And here's the thing. I don't think it is out of our realm of scientific imagination that because our, our petroleum-based phones are pretty wasteful here. It is completely imaginable that there will come a time that more recyclable, more natural materials can be used for the transition of this information, right? We can imagine that for science, but when we, we hear God using something similar, we're like, ah, no, that couldn't happen. Stop this nonsense. Stop it. Like um, God is able to use it right here. And Joseph apparently is able to use it. Martin records like he could see many things of my certain knowledge. He, He said, in the first place, he told me of this stone and he proposed to blind his eyes and like blind, put a blindfold on his eyes and then use the seer stone to run a race through the woods. And like, he's a teenage boy with a seer stone. That's crazy. But anyways, I, um, Martin says a few days later, he's hanging out at the Smith house and he says he's picking his teeth with a pin and the pin pops out, drops into the shavings in the straw and he can't find it. And so he's like, Joseph, how about you use your stone? And Joseph's like, all right takes a stone out of his pocket, puts it in his hat and kind of uses it like a a periscope and and looking in the hat without looking under it, he moves this piece of straw, picks up the pin and shows it to him all the time while uh, looking in a hat at the stone. It's amazing. 
When he gets the two Nephite stones, he uses them like he had used the seer stones. He uses them to locate the plates and make sure that they're okay. The Urim and Thummim, as we call them, uh, these two Nephite stones are constantly on his body and he uses them to find them. So when the translation process starts, he um, at times at the beginning will use the breastplate and the, the, the stones fit in the wire, though that doesn't seem to, to work really well for him or fit well, really well for him. Instead, what will happen is he'll use either the Urim and Thummim or his own seer stone and he'll put it in a hat and he'll put his face in a hat. And then with on the stone, there will come up words and he will read off the words. Now, some of you are like, that's weird. He puts the rock in the hat, but people, people talk about that. That's just to keep the glare off. It's just like you being outside in the, the sun looking at your phone and you block your phone so you can see it a little bit better. But the process is that he will read off the plate. This is exactly what it talks about in 2 Nephi chapter 27, verse 20. Then shall the Lord say unto him, thou shalt read the words which shall be given unto you. So the plates are there the whole time, but most of the time they're wrapped up. So why have plates if he's just reading them off this stone? Uh, what they do is they demonstrate the historicity, the sense of reality about these people and the places. It creates a confidence in Joseph and those around him in the, this text and helps them to, to move forward. Like what we are claiming is that Joseph translated by the gift and power of God. He, he, he says, it is not me, this is God, okay? Um, he, he records that this is plainly the gift and power of God. Joseph can't read Reformed Egyptian. You can't drop him off in a pyramid and he'd be able to find his way reading street signs. Um, the, the, this Urim and Thummim that we call it, the, these devices to receive divine direction, um, they just help him access the power of God. Joseph is straight just reading these words. Like, uh, he, he, sometimes he'll stop, he, he'll say something like, Emma, did Jerusalem have a wall around it? And she says, yeah, re- re- recalling the description in the Bible. And he says, ah, I was afraid I'd been deceived. Joseph says in the preface of the Book of Mormon, I would inform you that I translated by the gift and power of God. The gift and power of God. I say, hooray for the rock. This forces us to, to actually like confront this book as it is to read and see if it actually is what it claims it is. Does this book bring us closer to Jesus Christ? Does it help us understand the gospel more clearly? Does it help us know what we are supposed to do? I'm I'm grateful for this. You actually got to confront this book and read it and see what it is. There's just no other way to go about it. So looking at this story, I want to come back here a little bit. And I want to uh, talk to you about this idea of an instruction manual. Because it it seems like looking at Joseph's life and even looking at my life, it doesn't seem like God is that interested in giving us step-by-step instructions. Okay, it's Wednesday. Step one, do this. Step two, do this. And some of us think we would like it better if God did that. But I have watched when somebody tries to micromanage somebody else, you know, when they try and tell them every step along the way, and the end result is always rebellion. I'll eat my ice cream how I want to eat my ice cream. 
God seems perfectly comfortable with the messiness of learning. He is okay with the misfires and the stumbles. Um, sometimes the, these misfires and stumbles just embarrass us and we think it should be more clean, but it's not like that. Just pay attention to how Joseph came across this translation process, how he did it. My oldest son seems to have a knack for learning things. Like he'll, he'll be at a basketball game and pick up a ball and just spin it on his finger and it will just spin and spin and spin. Or he'll pick up three random rocks and just start jungling. Juggling. Jungling? I don't think that's a thing. Juggling. And, and people are like, dude, this kid's talented, but I live with him. I have seen how messy it is. Balls dropping on my floor and echoing through my house. Bam! Bam, bam! Bam, bam, bam! really obsessively just trying until he gets it right. God is okay with the process. He's okay with the messiness. He's okay with the realness. Like this summer, we took our kids boating on Lake Powell with one of my cousins. And we thought to make a weekend of it, so we decided we'd go camp out the night before we did some boating. We got there at 10 p.m. after it was dark, and we set up our tent in the dark. The, the wind was blowing out of the southeast like you were standing in front of one of those hand dryer, air-blowing hand dryers. It was like a hand dryer full of sand blowing at you. We put rocks on each of our stakes, and even then our, our tent was kind of pitched at an angle with the wind. But we got up and ate our sugar cereal because it was vacation after all. And we went boating and swam and played in the warm waters of Lake Powell. And then we got done and wiped off the boat. And my cousin and her family went back to Kanab and we ate some fried chicken and page. And then we went back to our campsite, put some coins in the campsite shower to rinse the sticky heat from the day off of us. And then we walked back outside and it was still so hot. I was already sweating again. So, so sweaty. I know I should have planned better than to take my kids camping in Arizona in July. I, that's one of the basic instructions in the parent play, playbook. No camping in July in Arizona. And I didn't know what to do for the rest of the evening. I was just so hot. My brain was melting. Rivers running down my back. The thought of sitting in our easy bake oven of a tent playing card games really made me want to cry. So we packed up our stuff, called my cousin to sleep in her house, and an hour later I found myself eating ice cream on our couch, watching Guy Ferrari visit a diner or a drive or an inn or a dive, I don't remember. Uh, I just felt so content. And what I'm saying here, I know that sounds random, but does God still work with us when it seems like we have no idea what we're doing? When we're, we're just stumbling along doing the best we can? It seems possible that God can work through the messiness of life. It seems like that's his plan. And the Book of Mormon is part of this plan. This is a work of God translated by the gift and power of God. Actually read with this book. Engage in the powerful teachings about Jesus. Sail with Nephi. Wrestle with Enos. Struggle with Alma. Find a real friend in Moroni. Real people in the real messiness of life, finding God, translated by the gift and power of God. You remember Enos? He says, I'll tell you about the wrestle which I had before God when I received a remission of my sins. I was going hunting in the forest and the words which I had heard my father speak concerning eternal life sunk deep in my heart and my soul hungered and I kneeled down before my maker and I cried unto him. All the day long I cried unto him. Yeah, when night come, 
I was still crying to him. And there came a voice unto me saying, Enos, thy sins are forgiven thee. And I, I knew that God couldn't lie and my guilt was swept away. And I said, Lord, how is it done? And he said, because of thy faith in Christ, whom thou hast never before heard nor seen, and years pass away before he shall manifest himself in the flesh, go to thy faith has made thee whole. Ah, oh, this is good stuff. By the gift and power of God, it's a miracle. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. See you next time.